This episode of New Politics was released on the 4th of December, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, an untidy end to the parliamentary year. And will we ever see a coalition between the Labor Party and the Greens? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, hideous creep. Thank you to all of our new Patreon subscribers and thank you for your continuing support. And if you would like to support our little venture, the details are available at our website, newpolitics.com.au, and it's a very good way to support independent journalism. So that's it for the Parliament this year, and it's been quite a tumultuous year that started off with the allegations of a rape at Parliament House, and it ended with the release of a report into sexual harassment in parliamentary workplaces and a federal minister standing aside after being accused of physical abuse against his former partner. Every year in politics is different, but there have been so many political issues during 2021, most of which have been left unresolved, including climate change, corruption, There's still the coronavirus that needs management and the never-ending man problem in politics. And all of these seem to be intractable problems that are proving to be difficult to resolve. There's also at least 10 federal government MPs resigning at the next election and most of these are in relatively marginal seats. So it could be a case where they've just had enough of politics or they've looked at the polls and decided that they can't stomach the idea of sitting on the opposition benches after the next election. Is the departure of so many MPs before the next election a sign that the government has given up or are there other factors at play? It's really hard to know. When uh, Christopher Pine stepped down at the last election, a lot of people took that as a sign that the government was pretty much finished, that a very senior member of the government had decided that he'd had enough. Now, he stepped down, he moved on into other things, And the seat was not won by an independent or a Labor candidate, but by another Liberal. So it was thought that that's a sign that the senior members were giving up. There were others too, but Pine was the most prominent. Greg Hunt is probably another example in this election. He's had 20 years or something in his seat. And Morrison likes to present himself as the miracle man and... Even though there's a lot of anti-government sentiment around, we've already interviewed two seats and we've, we've got more to come uh, where independent candidates are tapping into a, uh, an anti-government strain. A lot of the anti-government feeling is coming from people who are going to vote UAP or One Nation too. It's coming from both sides. Say the progressive right will call it through to the lunatic right. And a lot of those votes will flow through as preferences to Liberal candidates. So it may be that people like Greg Hunt, say, have had enough, they want to do something else, they felt that he feels that he's done all he can um, and that it's time to move on. I can't really speak for him. Obviously, people like Christian Porter have other factors at play, although it's interesting that it, it feels like the constant defence of Porter's run out. He's been able to hide behind the government 
for as long as they can and, and they've finally said enough is enough. So we will see. Well, you can't stay in politics forever unless you're someone like Billy Hughes, but there does need to be room for renewal in politics. And there have been suggestions that because there's so many government MPs and ministers retiring before the next election, well, this is a sign of government panic. But there's also six Labor MPs retiring as well. And the amount of government MPs retiring at the next election is actually less than at the 2019 election. And the Liberal National Coalition, they went on to win that election. But when you look at some of the people that are retiring, there is some real deadwood there. There's Andrew Lamming. He hasn't really achieved that much during his time in politics, and he's actually been a liability to the LNP up in Queensland. There's Steve Irons in West Australia, pretty much the same. Damien Drum is also resigning in Victoria. John Alexander in New South Wales. But the two biggest profile MPs that are leaving are Christian Porter and Greg Hunt. So Christian Porter is probably the biggest underachiever in politics. There were suggestions that he was a future Prime Minister, but he was uneventful as Treasurer in the WA Parliament. He was uneventful as Social Security Minister and then as Attorney General. And I think the only person who really thought that he was going to become the Prime Minister was Christian Porter himself. Greg Hunt, there's a different issue going on there, but I think that Greg Hunt actually had more promise before he entered Parliament. He did a thesis into the virtues of a carbon tax, but then he goes on to repeal the carbon pricing mechanism and with great joy during the time that he was the Minister for an Environment. He was also Minister for Health for almost five years. But he was also part of the bungled vaccination program. And his time during the pandemic has been more spin rather than action. But we have to give these people some credit for remaining in politics for 20 years or thereabouts. But that's about it, I think. Uh, yeah, I will say with John Alexander, he he stated that it was disillusionment with the government that was making him step down, as opposed to the others who are going off to spend more time with their family. It may be that the others are disillusioned with the government but didn't feel it appropriate or didn't feel brave enough or didn't want to spoil the chance for the next candidate or whatever reason. Porter's no loss. George Christensen, another one with who be no loss. In fact, his leaving will be a net gain for the parliament. And during the week, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, she released Set the Standard, and that's the independent report into Commonwealth Parliamentary workplaces and the report indicated that 33% of women working in Parliament House experienced sexual harassment and over 50% experienced at least one incident of bullying, sexual harassment or sexual assault. And here's what the Prime Minister had to say about the report. I want to thank Kate and Jenkins and all of her team, not just for undertaking this review, but the incredibly a professional and sensitive manner in which they undertook this review. This is a, a difficult issue. It's a sensitive issue. It's a, it's a very vulnerable issue for people, understandably. I also want to thank all of those who have participated so well with the conduct of this review, sharing their experiences, telling their stories and, importantly, making their suggestions about how we can make this place a safer workplace for everyone who works here, not just the members of parliament and senators and indeed our staff, but indeed everyone who works here, including those who are assembled here today. I also want to thank Brittany Higgins for her courage in, in speaking up about these issues in relation to the terrible events that led her to make those statements. 
and her voice has been listened to, not just in the actions that we have already taken, but in the report that is being prepared now by Kate Jenkins. And her voice has spoken for many, as this report shows, and the concerns and experiences that they have had in so many occupations working here in this building. There's around 5,000 people who work in Parliament, and that's during the time that Parliament is sitting. So that's a lot of incidents of sexual harassment, sexual assault and bullying that's going on. And we do have to remember that Brittany Higgins was sexually assaulted just 50 metres away from Scott Morrison's office. And they tried to cover that up just before the 2019 federal election. There's the allegations of bullying against women, Liberal Party MPs, harassment of women, forcing them out of the party. Now, a lot of people might say, well, hang on, you're just focusing on the Liberal Party. What about the Labor Party? And yes, that's absolutely correct. This is an issue for all of Parliament, not just the Liberal and National parties. But we do have to remember at least Labor does have 48% women MPs, while the Coalition has got only around 23%. So I think there's a big difference there. But overall, it seems like it's just another case of Scott Morrison saying all the right words at the right time, but then going on to do nothing of substance to change any of those bad practices that are going on at Parliament House or anywhere else. And and also on the same day that this report was released, when Jackie Lambie was speaking in the Senate, David Van, a Liberal Party senator, he was making growling noises and dog sounds. Now, you think that if they're going to do that, at least have the sense to do it on a different day. So it seems like the Liberal Party has got a long, long way to go with these issues. There's certainly a sense of entitlement amongst some members of the Liberal Party in, in how they think they can get away with various treatments of all types of people, not just women. I think... Alan Tudge will be made some kind of scapegoat. I think it was perfectly timed or badly timed, depending on your view, that report coming out, because the Prime Minister couldn't stand up and say, oh, this is very serious, and then say, but Tudge is excused because of whatever reason. I think that not only will Tudge probably not survive the inquiry, I think he will make it so that no others will have to go through it because they will say, oh, look, but we are very pro-women. Look what we did to Alan Tudge. There's, of course, other issues in there in that Tudge isn't a popular member of the Liberal Party in the way that, say, Matthias Cormann was or Greg Hunt was. And before you all start frothing at the mount, I mean, within the Liberal Party, outside the party's a different thing, <laughs> but uh, within the Liberal Party, they were quite well-liked and well-regarded members. Alan Tudge wasn't that. So I think there may have been a case there of this is someone we don't like and we're getting rid of as well. And also just today, Labor has released its emissions reductions target for 2030. And at 43%, it's actually lower than what it presented at the 2019 election. And that's that was 45%. The coalition's target is only 26 to 28%. And the Business Council of Australia is supporting a reduction target of 45 to 50%. So it would seem that Labor is in safe territory politically, but that's not going to stop Scott Morrison trying to depict Labor's policy as economy destroying or a big tax because they're just looking for any opportunity at all to attack and misrepresent Labor policy at any cost. But has Anthony Albanese handed a political opportunity to Scott Morrison or is it just a case of providing a sensible environment policy that's supported by the business community? Maybe a bit of both. We've said before how Labor has the issue of its inner city members who tend to be more 
environmentally uh, radical, say, or environmentally progressive, uh, as opposed to some of its rural members who work in the mining industry and are, are worried about their jobs and their futures. So Labor has to balance this stuff. Also, any government has to try and appease business somehow, if only because business are the ones who should be paying tax and employing people and, and helping the economy tick along to an extent anyway. I think Morrison will probably make a lot of play about how this is dangerous radical stuff and you can't trust Labor. But when the Business Council supports you, it's hard to be painted as a radical. The Business Council aren't even progressive. They're quite conservative in many ways. And again, when I discuss these ideas, often I'm not criticising them. It's just the way that they are and makes sense that they're that way. So unless he's going to make enemies within the business council and misrepresent what they're saying and doing and how they behave or even try and shut down their voice. He's got a very large hill to push this message up. But also with the Business Council of Australia, when they get involved with these sort of issues, it's not going to be a moral issue that they're worried about or trying to pander to green interests. They're looking at this from an economic perspective. And, and I think that it's actually safe politically for Labor to actually look at... It ends up being a numerical issue. Like they'll say 43%. They could have chosen 42 or 41 or 39. Who knows? They probably did some market research testing and came up with the number of 43 because that's actually lower than what the Business Council of Australia is suggesting. So I did mention before that that won't stop the Liberal Party or the Morrison government trying to exploit this issue politically. But I think you're in safer ground if you're arguing for a case that's only slightly below what the Business Council of Australia is suggesting and it's actually way above what the Coalition is suggesting. So I, th I think this will probably be a net positive for Anthony Albanese. I think so. And and also, to come in under the Business Council, it means that you, you're prepared to work with them, but you're prepared to disagree with them too. And, and the Business Council coming out as the most environmentally friendly is good for them in the current environment. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, will we ever see a formal alliance between the Labor Party and the Australian Greens? A street transistors are playing the same tune. been asked quite a few times about a formal agreement or a coalition between the Labor Party and the Australian Greens, much in the way that there's a coalition between the Liberal Party and the National Party, and there have been suggestions that a Labor-Greens alliance would be a powerful combination that would be difficult to defeat at federal elections. But 
There's a wide range of considerations to take into account. Labor and the Greens, they might share some common values, but they are different political parties. There are different personalities, they have different organisational structures, they have totally different histories. And there's also been suggestions, well, this shouldn't present any problems to them because the Liberal and the National parties are also radically different parties, but with some shared values. And they've managed to hold their coalition successfully, albeit with a few problems along the way. But the biggest factor is that the Labor Party does have the ability to form government in its own right. And the Greens don't have enough seats in the lower house. They've only got the one seat. So that, of course, could change in the future. But the upshot is that there isn't a coalition between the Labor Party and the Greens because there isn't a need for one. Well, the other thing, too, is that Labor policy is to not enter into coalition. Now, I know that you had the Gillard minority government and you could technically argue that that wasn't a coalition because it Labor had the support of independents who it still had to negotiate with. It wasn't a coalition where everything was hammered out and a policy was hammered out like was done in 1922, for example, or is done every election in Italy, for example. I feel quite comfortable in calling it a coalition in that they had to coalesce to form government. But Labor traditionally, from its very early days, for historical reasons, didn't like coalitions. They were worried that the policy would be watered down. So there's two or three implications from this. Firstly, they developed policy within caucus, which was kept fairly secret. And if you were on the losing side of a vote, that was it. The vote ended things and you did not vote against the Labor Party. Now, some Liberal politicians or some liberal supporters say oh this shows that labor doesn't allow free thinking it does allow free thinking it just it only allows it within the caucus once you're in parliament everything's been decided and that's how you vote the liberal party allegedly allows members to vote against the party when it suits their conscience but the number of uh, disendorsements and demotions from cabinet and suggests that that's not a terribly wise move to take if you value your career. It's two different approaches. I'm not criticising either side. Uh, I'm not saying one side is better than the other. They both have their benefits and they both have their downsides. So I think that's another factor that just the history of Labor not wanting to enter into coalition is a part of it. The other thing too, what's not really comprehended because the Liberal or the Conservative press don't want this really acknowledged is that there are probably just as many disaffected Liberal Party members who joined the Greens as there are Labor Party members who joined the Greens. The Greens is an extremely broad church. It's probably the broadest of the three parties or the four parties, including the Nationals, in terms of its political affiliation. You have your economically conservative but worried about the environment NIMBYs, really, not in my backyard, people, right through to your Byron Bay hippies. I'm generalising a little bit here, but that's much wider than even the the Liberal Party's or wets to dries and the Labour Party's left to right factions. So the Greens entering into a coalition with Labour wouldn't 
be as easy as it thinks because a lot of their members would not want that. Either they're disaffected Labor members who left the Labor Party for whatever reason and joined the Greens and don't want to be working with them again, or they're Liberal members who don't like the Labor Party anyway. There's people in the middle who would find it. Again, I don't want to paint every Green as one of these three or four categories. I'm talking a bit generally here to give our listeners an, an idea of how I see it anyway, that it's a little bit more complex than just the two parties saying, hey, we've got this much in common. There's a lot that they don't have in common, which you don't want something like the Liberal Democrats and Labor in Britain, where it all just fell apart horribly. Well, already we're seeing the government using this idea of a Labor-Greens coalition as a scare tactic. So there they are, getting ready, getting ready, Mr Speaker, thinking the Greens and Labor are going to walk onto the Treasury benches of this country. It's the Greens. It's the sort of stuff that would happen if Albo became Prime Minister. And each way that may well end up being run by the Greens. Uh, there are risks from going to a Labor government that is beholden to the Greens. He would be held captive by this kind of Green left extremist. He has to dance to the tune of the Greens. It will be a partnership between Red Labor and the Green Greens. So we can see that the Liberal Party has decided that there's some political benefit in running with this kind of campaign. It's a campaign that's being run in conjunction with the mainstream media. But for me, it's also the behaviour of a government that doesn't really have that much to offer. If the only thing that they can present is this idea of a Labor-Green scare coalition, even though it's very unlikely for a Greens coalition to actually occur, they haven't really got much else to offer to the public. Yeah, exactly. It could be a very productive and fruitful coalition. I don't think it can be, but I think it has the potential to be. And if people start thinking through it, they might see, hold on, they might start comparing coalitions and seeing one that's not so good in many ways and one that might be very constructive. So again, these things can backfire in ways that are hard to predict. Also, political parties... They usually form when there's actually a need for it. And of course, the Labor Party was formed in 1891 because it saw that workers were not being represented in Parliament. The Country Party, which then became the National Party, that was formed in 1917 because it felt that regional areas were not being represented effectively. We had the Democrats forming in 1977 by Don Chip to keep the bastards honest. The Australian Greens in 1992, they go on to fill that void within the environment. One Nation in 1998, I guess, because racists and right-wing extremists need someone to vote for. So political parties are formed when there is a need or there's an opportunity in the electorate for like-minded people to combine their interests and resources and then end up going to have more political clout. But the upshot is that the Liberal Party cannot form government in its own right. And that's clouded a little bit with the combined Liberal National Party in Queensland. But... Currently, the Australian Greens poll around 10% of the vote Australia-wide, but they've only got the one lower house seat. Now, they should have around 10 to 15 seats based on that vote, and that's a separate issue that we could look at at another time. But essentially, they only hold the one seat in the lower house. So that's not much that you can bring to the negotiating table. Sure, they've got more senators, but governments are formed in the lower house and not the Senate. And... That's going to be the main issue for the Australian Greens. Labor would be thinking, well, win some more seats, preferably off the Liberal Party and not from the Labor Party, and then maybe we can start talking about it. The Greens will happily run against a safe Labor seat or a marginal Labor seat as they will a, a Liberal seat. And of course, 
Why not? The name of the game is winning seats. I know it frustrates a lot of Labor members that the Greens pushing a lot of very similar policies, even away from the environment, and then they run a good candidate against another good candidate taking resources away. But again, that's the nature of politics. That's the nature of the competition. To change that, I don't think, would be terribly healthy. And I'm not a member of the Greens. I've never been a member of the Greens. And I'm, I'm just looking at it as objectively as I can. I should state that. And if there's any of our listeners who are Green supporters who want to correct me, please let us know. But looking at these issues in the future, if after the next federal election, which will probably be held between March and May next year, if there is a hung parliament, and that's a rare event, but we can't discount it, if Labor has, say, 74 or 75 seats out of the 150 on offer, and the Greens end up with two or three seats, now they've definitely got at least one seat, and that's Adam Bant's seat in Melbourne, and I don't know where the others would come from, possibly other inner city seats of Melbourne, but there's your situation for a coalition of convenience. When Labor needs the Greens to form government rather than some sort of loose alliance with independent crossbenchers of different political persuasions, but we've seen the Morrison government govern with a margin of one or two seats, and they've governed as though they've got a majority of 100 seats. And I'm sure that if Labor was in the same position, say with 76 or 77 seats after the next election, well, they'd probably end up doing the same. So unless there's a hung parliament and Labor needs the support of the Australian Greens to form government, the idea of a coalition between the two is probably never going to happen. I suspect that it would only be a temporary... I don't think they will... 100 years later, break the record of the coalition that formed in 1922. And to be fair, the National Party and Liberal Party aren't in coalition when they're in opposition. They're only in coalition when they're in government. And given some of Barnaby's latest outbursts, they may not even be in coalition now. As he said, he didn't sign it and not part of the government. As deputy leader of the government, he said that policy wasn't part of, wasn't his idea it was the government's idea, so we're still scratching our head over that. And maybe that's the way the Greens would like it, where they get all the benefits of being in government with none of the responsibility. I doubt it, but you never know. <laughs> that's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.